48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. Vendors at a Tinshawai market are offered COVID tests after another infection linked to the site. A domestic worker loses a legal challenge over the live-in rule for helpers. And the government comes under fire for allowing international schools to fill more places with local pupils. Workers at Tinshawai Market are to be tested for COVID-19 after it emerged that some recently infected people had been shopping there. The latest patient linked to the tea market in Chengfu is a foreign domestic worker from the Philippines. Dr. Chuan Shikwan from the Centre for Health Protection says officials are only sending specimen bottles to vendors at the market as a precaution. We are not saying that um, she got the infection from the wet market or, or anywhere, but, but that's the only place we can test. The helper is one of six new coronavirus infections recorded today. Four of the patients caught the virus outside Hong Kong. A University of Hong Kong medical expert has warned that there could be a resurgence in COVID-19 cases even before winter arrives. Epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling says recently relaxed social distancing measures give the virus the opportunity to spread. We would expect to have a fourth wave of infections sooner or later. We've all been hoping that there'll be a bit of time, a bit of a pause now while we can relax and then maybe later this year, maybe we'll see a fourth wave. I'm a little bit worried now that we might be seeing a resurgence quite soon. I hope that's not the case, but there are worrying signs. And because the social distancing measures have been relaxed, it it does make me worry that there is opportunities for COVID to spread now. A Filipino helper has lost a court bid to overturn the rule that requires foreign domestic workers to live with their employers. Maggie Ho reports. Nancy Lubiano first took her case to court of first instance, arguing that foreign domestic workers should be allowed to live away from their place of work as long as their employers give consent. But in 2018, the court ruled that letting helpers live elsewhere would put them in direct competition with local domestic helpers, thus breaching the principles of importing labor. So Ms. Lubiano went to the court of appeal, where she warned that the live-in rule heightens the risk of a helper being forced to work when they're supposed to be resting. Her lawyer cited the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which says everyone has the right to just and favorable conditions of work and to enjoy rest, leisure, with a reasonable limitation of working hours and periodic holidays. But the three-judge appeal court panel has rejected the arguments put forward, noting that helpers are free to leave their employers' homes during their weekly 24-hour rest period. The panel says the aspirations of an international covenant are not applicable unless they have been incorporated into domestic legislation, even if the government says it complies with the relevant obligations. The judges also say the live-in rule is an immigration policy relating to the protection of local workers, so it can't be challenged by way of what's essentially a claim of forced labour. Eman Velenova from the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body says that the ruling is disappointing but not surprising. He says the policy is clearly discriminatory. It's part of the institutionalization of modern-day slavery in Hong Kong, and I think the decision is more political than legal. 
And so, therefore, we're not really that surprised. But it's still, you know, uh, disheartening to hear the unfavorable ruling after all these years of, uh, you know, our advocacy work in Hong Kong promoting the rights of migrant domestic workers. It seems that the, the government doesn't really, you know, change that much in terms of its treatment to migrant domestic workers. The Federation of Education Workers has criticised the government's decision to allow international schools to take in more local pupils. Some international schools are said to be struggling to fill 70% of places with expatriate children, so officials are temporarily relaxing this rule. But the pro-Beijing Federation says this might make it even harder for local schools to fill places. Education sector lawmaker Edkin Yuen agrees. I do have reservation on relaxing the RAISO because I think the primary purpose of international schools is to accommodate the non-local students and I think it will also pose some threats to the local schools. Nowadays we have problems you know, in student intake. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Riot police have been at the Yoho Mall in Yunlong this evening, 14 months after the gang attack on passengers at the town's MTR station. Few protesters were seen at the mall, despite online calls for a demonstration. Police stopped people and checked their ID. One man was taken away in handcuffs, while a teenager, who said he was from an online media outlet, was fined for allegedly breaching the current four-person gathering limit. Police recently characterised the Yunlong mob attack as a clash between two rival gangs. Officers arrested some of the victims last month, saying they suspected them of rioting. A man's been jailed for almost four years for his involvement in an attack on democracy activist Jimmy Sham last year. A teenage boy has been sent to a training centre for his part in the attack, which took place inside a restaurant in Jordan. Wendy Wong has details. Salesman Lo Kin Wan, who's 30, and the boy who's 16, were both found guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm with intent. In August last year, they had tailed Jimmy Sham and manned the getaway car for the two actual assailants who have not been caught. Mr. Sham wasn't injured in the attack at the restaurant on Tech Heng Street as he was shielded by a friend. The friend was left only slightly hurt, despite the fact that the assailants were armed with a baseball bat and a butcher's knife. In handing down the sentences, District Court Judge Johnny Chan said low ball responsibility for recruiting a minor to help carry out the attack and his punishment of three years and ten months behind bars should have a deterrent effect. The judge said although the teenager was only following the orders of someone much older than him, both he and Lowe had the same level of culpability as the mastermind of the attack. The judge said rather than a jail term, a training centre for rehabilitation would be more suitable for the boy. Meanwhile, Detective Inspector Choi Chun On says an investigation into the attack is still ongoing. As to the investigation against the culprits at large, the investigation is still on the way and has never been stopped. For the details, we could not disclose here, but uh, we will, and as we always do, we will strive our best to bring the culprits to the justice. Mr. Sham, the convener of the Civil Human Rights Front, was also injured in a separate attack last year. He was assaulted in a Moncos street in October by several men wielding hammers. The Department of Justice is asking the Court of Appeal to clarify whether people who provide active support to unauthorised protests, such as driving services or materials, should face charges such as rioting and illegal assembly. 
a man who was cleared of both offences in relation to an incident in Xiongwan last year, says he's been notified that the department is seeking clarification, but that his acquittal will not be overturned. In a letter, the department says the judge was wrong to ask prosecutors to prove that all defendants were present in the place where a crime happened. The son of an 84-year-old woman who's been in a coma for almost two months after allegedly being given the wrong medication says he's worried there's a lack of legal protection for elderly people who live in care homes. Jimmy Choi reports. Mr Liu says his mother was sent to hospital from the Longevity Palace Care Home in Kowloon City in July after her heart rate and blood sugar dropped to dangerous levels. He says she's been in a coma since then. Mr Liu says doctors at Kwangwa Hospital told him they found diabetes drugs in his mother's urine, even though she had not been prescribed such medication. He says it was only after the social welfare department stepped in that the care home said it would look into what happened. Mr Liu also says his family had seen on surveillance footage that rats had been roaming around his mother's bed spades at the home. He says many elderly people aren't living with dignity in care homes, and the government should allocate more resources for senior citizens. We've realised that elderly people living in care homes don't have any legal protection when accidents happen. According to the current legislation, the social welfare department can only issue warning letters and guidelines to care homes or carry out spot checks, but there's no other legal protection for the elderly. In response to media inquiries, the social welfare department said its licensing office sent a warning letter to the Longevity Palace Care Home and has also been following up on the reports of rats there. It said there were 13 convictions last year related to elderly care homes, and the department sent out more than 200 warning letters over the past two years. Crystal Ewan from the Society for Community Organisation has been helping Mr Liu and his family. She told Jimmy Choi that it's shocking that care homes which receive government subsidies can still have serious hygiene and management problems. An A1 grade elderly home should have a higher standard services compared to the other private elderly home and the government have subsidized needs and the elderly who go to this place a one great elderly home need to pass a standardized needs assessment does it surprise you that a top grade elderly home was found out to have this rodent issues and that it is also involved in a medical incident uh, yes, we are very surprised. We are very shocked because the subsidized elderly homes, uh, there is not enough place. And the government usually say that this kind of A1 grade private elderly home can solve the problem. It should have a better quality. So we are very disappointed and shocked to have this kind of medical incidents and the hygiene office is so poor. Do you think the government should stop subsidising the care home as a form of punishment? We think that they can enhance the monitoring and maybe have some marking scheme. Uh, if they have too many incidents, they can terminate their licence. For now, the elderly care home, they just receive warning and um, social welfare department, we think that they are afraid to terminate their license because they have nowhere to place the elderly in the residential care home. If there is a marking scheme system, we think that there will have more impact on monitoring the elderly home. 
And we also suggest to have some mystery customers. They can hire young elderly or the retired social worker to have a more real pictures and uh, no more situation on the elderly home because now they have some checking regularly, but um, we think that it is too superficial. What does this incident tell us about the operation or the management of these uh, care homes? I think the government and the social welfare department should strictly monitor the um, services of the private elderly home. We think that should have a blacklist because now the system do not have any penalty on the owner, only on the elderly home and they can change the name of the elderly home and the owners still run the business. The government says it expects a $10,000 cash handout for new immigrants on low incomes will cost it more than $2 billion in total. These residents were left out of a similar scheme earlier this year. Damon Pang reports. The government says it thinks around 200,000 people will apply for the handouts, which will be means-tested. To be eligible, applicants will also have to be receiving other subsidies, such as social welfare, or be exempt from some medical fees at public hospitals. Welfare Secretary Law Chi Kuang says it's right to help new arrivals to the territory, despite the government's current financial woes. They're also residents of Hong Kong, and they are bona fide Hong Kong residents. So how are we going to help them? To use the community care fund is the suitable vehicle of providing this kind of assistance. But because it is the community care fund, you have to target on those who are relatively financially needy. Applications will be accepted from Sunday, starting off with those aged 49 and above. Mr Law says Bank of China Hong Kong has been given the task of processing the applications. He says the bank was picked because it has the most branches in the SAR and carrying out a tender exercise for the scheme would only have delayed it. He dismissed any suggestion of a transfer of interest. Whether it is transfer of interest, I would say I actually have to thank the Bank of China of helping the community care fund to do this program. I'm not sure how much they spend on touching up the systems and how they develop the whole thing and the staff costs related. But basically, I would consider it's part of their corporate social responsibility in helping to deliver this program. The earlier cash handout for permanent residents was processed by more than 20 banks in the city. But Mr Law says having more than one take part this time would only have led to difficulties, such as problems with synchronizing the different systems. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Vendors at a market in Tinshuai are being offered COVID tests after another infection linked to the site. A Filipino domestic worker loses her legal challenge to the live-in requirement for helpers. And the government comes under fire for allowing international schools to fill more places with local pupils. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Leaked documents show that HSBC allowed fraudsters to transfer millions of dollars around the world, even after it had learned of their scam. The bank moved the money through its US business to accounts in Hong Kong in 2013 and 2014. 
HSBC's role in the 80 million US dollar fraud is detailed in a leak of files from the US Financial Crimes Investigation Network. The documents were leaked to BuzzFeed News, which shared them with investigative journalists. The BBC's Richard Belton reports. Most of his body was submerged underwater. The files show the reality of fraud. It can be a messy business. He was bound. Uh, he had coverings over his face. You knew that he was deceased. Raymond Pacheco's body was found in a vineyard. And this is the dream that cost him his life. World Capital Market is managed by a team of experts. He was taken in by a scam. To make money, he needed to recruit other investors. When they lost money, he was murdered. Asia and Europe. He was a victim in the scheme. He was a victim in a homicide. Um, just a true, true victim. Thousands lost money in the scam. The fraudsters stole $80 million. We've discovered that Britain's biggest bank helped them get away with it. HSBC allowed the fraudsters to move the stolen cash around the world even after the bank had been told it was a scam. The US part of the bank said it was unable to locate any accounts with the information stated on the subpoena. What HSBC didn't tell the regulator is that those accounts were in another country. The bank then carried on moving more than $30 million of stolen cash from the UK and US to the fraudsters' HSBC accounts in Hong Kong. So they had the information, they sat on it. That's when they were uh, just as guilty as the fraudsters in perpetuating the scheme. They knew about it and did nothing about it. HSBC didn't comment on the fraud case, but said it has been on a multi-year journey to overhaul its ability to combat financial crime. But the files show the secret story is that banks often don't stop crime and suspect behavior. The leak is of suspicious activity reports. What banks have to tell the authorities if they think their clients may be up to no good. These documents contain some of the banking system's most closely guarded secrets. The suspicions big banks have about their wealthiest clients. And they show how the system has failed to stop criminals from laundering their cash. The Democratic Party says it will propose changes to Hong Kong's prevention of cruelty to animals law after nobody was prosecuted for throwing around 30 pets to their deaths from a residential building in Shamsheng. Two people were arrested in February, but no charges were laid. The former Democratic Party chairman, Albert Ho, who is also a solicitor, told Richard Pine that he's struggling to understand why the case hasn't been pursued further. This is not a simple case. We have seen that over 30 animals, some being contained in cages, being thrown down from a high-rise building. So apart from the question of cruelty, which disturbed and outraged many people, there is also another possible offence of dropping or allowing an object to be dropped from a building, which would cause hazard to public safety. You can imagine if somebody throw an electric fan or a chair from a high-rise building to the ground level, do you think the police would say that, well, I don't know who did it, and no way to conduct the investigation? Certainly not. So I refuse to understand 
why the DOJ simply throw their hands up and say that nothing could be done. Is it too late for them to reverse their decision, or is there any way a private prosecution could be brought? I think it's too late because of the um, provisions in the relevant ordinance prescribing that the offences could only be uh, convicted in summary proceedings. So in other words, uh, it seems that one cannot initiate the prosecution of an indictable offence, in which case you know, there would be no limitation period of six months. Now, I understand that possibly there are some drafting problems in the existing cruelty to animals ordinance, which narrowly confined that the owners should show the certain responsibility. So it may be, some would say that the offence is too narrowly drawn. But anyway, as I've said, the dropping of a falling object itself would warrant investigation and certainly sufficient evidence to lay a charge. So you mentioned there may be some sort of deficiencies in the uh, current ordinance. You and your colleague, Roy Kwong from the Democratic Party, have proposed some changes. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Actually, the administration have, about two years ago, launched a proposal for a comprehensive review of the law. Up to now, you know, the progress is very, very slow. But in view of the situation, something ought to be done. In fact, you know, after that horrible incident, there are two other cases. So the loopholes must be closed and must be done promptly. So um, we suggest that a private member's bill be tabled in the Legislative Council as soon as possible to plop the loopholes. We have proposed three amendments along this line. One, in case of serious acts of cruelties, then the prosecution can initiate the prosecution of an indictable offence. They can take the case to a district court and call for a more severe sentence. And, and of course, you know, the maximum sentence should be increased to two years imprisonment instead of three months imprisonment. The second point is we propose that there should be provision for evidential presumption, namely if anything happened to the animals showing that it was being cruelly treated or died of cruelty, then the person in control of the animal has the burden to show that this is not due to his negligent act or negligent omission. And thirdly, I would also suggest that if the cruelty to an animal happened in a premise or in a piece of land, then the person who is the owner of the land, who is in control of the land as a tenant or as a licensee or whatever, then he or she should show that the cruelty was not due to his negligent act or omission. So these are very simple and intended to plug the loopholes of the existing law. The Democratic Party's presidential candidate, Joe Biden, said it would be an abuse of power if Republican senators confirmed any US Supreme Court nominee put forward by Donald Trump before November's election. President Trump has declared his determination to quickly fill the seat left vacant by the death on Friday of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RTHK's Washington correspondent Barry Wood told Mike Weeks this is shaping up to become a major political battle. It adds an element of new uncertainty and even intrigue into the presidential election which is, of course, uh, looming upon us in early November. How is it going to impact on what's probably the most divisive election seen in the U.S. in living memory? Well, put your minds back to uh, 2000. 
20 years ago, we had a tie in the popular vote, and it all depended on whether Florida would go Democratic or Republican. Well, the Supreme Court had to resolve that dispute. The Democrats were saying, now let's have another recount. We've already had a couple, but let's have more. And the Republicans said, we've had enough, declare a winner. And the Republicans won that argument because the Supreme Court, by a ruling of five to four, went with the Republican view. And George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, was declared the winner. So it's very important. Now you have only eight justices on the court. Two of them have been appointed by Donald Trump. And the absence of Mrs. Ginsburg is certainly something that doesn't help the Democrats because she was a very liberal Democrat by inclination, and most of her rulings would reflect that as well. But most importantly, Mike, it has to do with the case of abortion because 1973, the court ruled that a pregnant woman had a choice as to whether to have the child or to select an abortion. Congress had never passed a law on this. And of course, it's divisive with most Catholics opposing abortion. So the fact that there's never been a congressional mandate for many on the right of the political spectrum, getting the court to be more conservative, less activist, has been their objective for, well, nearly 50 years. So that's why, that's part of the reason why this is such an important nomination that the president, Donald Trump, will have to make. Or not have to make. It seems that um, many people are opposed to him making this decision very quickly, as he seems to want to do, which is, goes, doesn't it, against the sort of conventions? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because uh, you mentioned the, the case of Merrick Garland, who the Democrats put up. But you see, in that time, the Republicans had the um, uh, Senate... But the administration, the, the presidency, was controlled by the Democrats. So it wasn't like it is today. It is now Republican Senate and Republican president. So to their regret, I suppose, the Democrats had, wanting to push this Garland nomination forward, said, we'll do away with the two-thirds majority to confirm the justice and just have a simple majority. By that measure... If the president steps quickly into this and he says he will nominate a woman and indicates from his list of more than 20 that this is the person to be nominated, he could sail through the Senate. Already two Republican women have said, hold it, I won't vote in the full Senate until after the election. But that's quite different than waiting until after, in fact, waiting until 2021 to have the whole process start. And finally tonight, the HBO drama Succession and the Canadian comedy series Shit's Creek were the big winners at this year's Emmys. The ceremony was broadcast from a largely empty theatre in Los Angeles with TV stars accepting their awards at home because of the pandemic. The BBC's David Willis was watching. This was the first major Hollywood award show of the COVID era, and one of the oddest ever. Well, hello and welcome to the pandemies. There was no red carpet, no star-studded audience, only canned applause as the host, Jimmy Kimmel, took to the stage of an empty theater. Of course I'm here all alone. Of course we don't have an audience. This isn't a MAGA rally, it's the Emmys. 
linking the whole thing together, more than a hundred different Wi-Fi feeds from the living rooms, bedrooms, or back gardens of the nominees. Catherine O'Hara, Shits Creek. And as if the whole thing wasn't already surreal enough, the trophies were presented by people in hazmat suits designed to look like tuxedos. Catherine O'Hara's award, the first of seven Emmys for a Canadian sitcom based in the fictional town of Schitt's Creek. Black performances and Black Lives Matter. Say it with me, Jimmy. Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Matter. Louder, Jimmy! Fittingly, perhaps, following a summer of protest over racial injustice, this was the most diverse group of nominees ever, according to the Emmy producers. Uzo Aduba, Mrs. America. Wow, Mom, I won! Oh, my God! And the HBO series Watchmen, a timely take on racism and police violence in America, won four awards, including one each for its stars Regina King and Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Watchmen was a story about trauma. It was a story about uh, the lasting scars of, uh, of uh, white domestic violence. It was white domestic terrorism, pardon me. It was a story about... Uh, police corruption and brutality. Uh, but in the midst of all that, it was also a story about a God who came down to earth to reciprocate to a black woman all the love that she deserved. He'd offer her sacrifice and support, uh, passion, protection. And he did all that in the body of a black man. And I'm so proud that I was able to walk into those shoes. The HBO drama Succession won three Emmys, prompting what might be the first award show unthank yous from its British creator, Jesse Armstrong. Unthank you to the virus uh, for keeping us all apart this year. Unthank you to uh, President Trump for his crummy and uncoordinated response. Uh, unthank you to um, Boris Johnson and his government for doing the same in my country. The medium these awards honour has perhaps rarely been more relevant given the isolation caused by the coronavirus. The Emmys mark the start of the Hollywood awards season, one that promises to be the most unconventional ever. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Steve Dunthon from our newsroom. Due to the volatile COVID-19 situation, the public should stay at home and avoid going out, in particular elderly persons, as they have higher risk of severe illness. Family and friends should help them with shopping and other daily needs. If elderly persons must go out, they need to wear a mask and wash hands frequently. Pay attention to the latest situation. See your doctor promptly if feeling unwell, even if the symptoms are mild. Let's fight the virus together. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. Remember. Welcome to Music Nostalgia with Ray Codero, all the way until 1am.